This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. And thank you for listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including the Warlord, John Sable, and Green Arrow. I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. And this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and opinions expressed are just ours. We do this podcast simply because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of Mike Grell. The number of issues covered in each episode varies based on story arcs. Today we're talking about the Warlord issues 40 and 41, and John Sable Freelance, numbers 28 through 30. And we're excited to have a special guest, Sean Ross, of the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, back on the show, who will be discussing Green Arrow issues number 33 and 34. If you enjoy the podcast, please check out MikeGrell.com. That's his official site. You'll find his convention schedule, photos, and news updates there. Mike has upcoming convention appearances in Chicago, South Carolina, Orlando, Calgary, Mississippi, New Jersey, Washington State, and Boston. And remember that pre-orders for convention sketches can be placed through Scott Cress at CatskillComics.com. And if you can't make it to a convention but would like to get an original drawing, then Scott Cress can help you out with that too. Just make your request at CatskillComics.com. We were so happy to see the success of Mike Grell's Kickstarter campaign for Maggie the Cat. Backers have already received their digital rewards, and the physical rewards have been going out as Mike finishes the work. Backers were really happy to support the deluxe volume combining the original two-issue run of Maggie the Cat with an expanded storyline and new pages of story and art. And we're excited about the upcoming project, Pilgrim, that Mike Grill is working on with his friend Mark Ryan. Fans of Robin of Sherwood will remember Mark Ryan from his role as Nazir. I'm a longtime fan of that show and really appreciate that Robin Hood connection with Mike Grill, who, as you know, has told and drawn many wonderful stories about another archer who strives to make a difference in the world. Mike Grail first teamed up with Mark Ryan for a Robin Hood meets Green Arrow crossover, and later on Mike worked on the Pilgrim comic with Mark. And some of you might remember that we wrote about that Robin Hood meets Green Arrow crossover on Clinton Robson's Coffee and Comics blog, and we'll cover it here on the podcast in the future. The Pilgrim ended before finishing the story, but now there's a chance to reprint the original pages, along with additional pages that had already been scripted and penciled, as well as new pages, to complete the story. It's all very exciting, so be sure to follow The Pilgrim on Facebook, as well as Mike Grell's Facebook page, Masterstroke Studios, The Mike Grell Universe. And you can follow Mike on Twitter, at Grell Official. And of course, The Mike Grell page on Facebook is a wonderful way to stay current on Mike Grell's projects. Longtime fans Gus Ceballos and Jeff Messer do a great job with that site. We enjoy giving shout-outs to our friends and sharing listener feedback, so please feel free to write to us anytime and join in on the conversations. We'd love to hear your thoughts about any of Mike Grell's titles. We'll provide our email address and other ways to reach us at the end of the episode. Warlord Worlds is part of the Rad Adventures Podcast Network. If you enjoy the show, please consider checking out our other podcasts that are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Xenozoic Xenophiles covers the post-apocalyptic adventure series Xenozoic Tales, featuring Cadillacs and dinosaurs by writer and artist Mark Schultz. And Trekker Talk is devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the sci-fi comic Trekker by writer and artist Ron Randall. Mike Grail, Mark Schultz, and Ron Randall are our favorite comic creators. Their stories are always filled with adventure and interesting characters, and their art is excellent. We hope you'll try out our other shows, and we'll be sure to include links to those podcasts in our show notes. The Warlord, number 40, December 1980. The Brotherhood of Death, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, John Costanza. Editor, Jack C. Harris. The story opens in the Palace of Kambuka, with King Ashir sitting on the throne, when he sees Travis Morgan and Shakira walking through the gate of his kingdom. 
Ashir leaps from his throne and engages the warlord in some swordplay, but Morgan quickly and easily disarms him. The two laugh and Shakira realizes they're friends and not enemies, and Morgan explains the two met a while back when Ashir was roaming the countryside as a wandering rogue before returning to take charge of the kingdom from his father. Ashir invites the two to stay and provides Morgan with a new outfit to cover him up a little because he's distracting the servants. Ashir talks about how much he misses his exciting time as a wandering rogue compared to the tedious affairs of state that he deals with on a daily basis, and now he's facing an arranged marriage to the queen of a neighboring country who he has never met. Before his wedding, he's going on a stag hunt, and he invites Morgan and Shakira to join him. Meanwhile, in a dark chamber of the castle, the sinister cloaked figure Harara watches the trio in a crystal ball. He tells the guards that Ashir must die before marrying the foreign queen and solidifying his power, but it can't look like an assassination. The cloaked figure gives one of the guards a talisman to give to Ashir before the hunt. In the forest, Ashir has taken aim at a giant stag when a saber-toothed tiger-like beast leaps from a tree to attack him. Morgan jumps into action and knocks the tiger from Ashir. Ignoring Morgan, though, the beast turns back toward Ashir, but he has had time to retrieve his bow and he kills the beast with an arrow. Morgan notices a talisman knotted into the fur of the beast that matches the one given to Ashir by the guard, and the trio realize the beast was drawn to attack Ashir by the talisman. Returning to the palace, the trio are attacked by a group of robed assassins. Our heroes defeat the assassins, and when they remove their hoods, Ashir is surprised to see guards whose families have served the kingdom for many years. Just then, trumpets sound, announcing the arrival of the queen Ashir is to marry. As the trio look from the balcony window, Travis Morgan is shocked to see the queen arriving for the wedding is none other than Tara, the queen of Shambhala. The cover features Travis Morgan in the new outfit he receives during the issue. He's brandishing his sword Hellfire in one hand and holding his pistol in the other. The double-page title page features a terrific image of Morgan and Ashir during their brief sword fight. It's great to see the return of Ashir, who we met back in issues 25 and 26. He's a fun character, and the story is fast-paced with some great action scenes and a nice twist at the end. In addition to the excellent cover and title page, some other favorite art includes the attack by the assassins at the palace and the gorgeous scene of Tara riding into Kombuka on the last page. I also really like the new outfit Morgan wears in the issue. It makes him look a bit like a pirate. Wizard World, The Book of the Dead. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, Todd Klein. Editor, Jack C. Harris. Back in the age of the Wizard Kings, Mongo Ironhand is searching the sanctuary of Ralph the Wretched along with Machiste and Mariah. Mongo finally finds what he's been searching for, which is the Book of the Dead. He grabs the book in excitement and tells Machista Mariah that it can make him the supreme leader of the wizards and that it will give him the power to return the pair to their own time. Suddenly, there is a blast of fire, and Sargon Fire-Eye appears and grabs the book. Machiste throws a dagger toward the evil wizard, but he has already vanished. Mongo explains that they must retrieve the book before the evil Sargon can use it and the trio set off for his stronghold at the Great Fire Mountain. Climbing the narrow paths along the steep cliffs of the mountain, our heroes are attacked by warriors riding upon winged creatures like pteranodons. They manage to fight off the warriors just as Sargon blasts the cliff wall above them, causing an avalanche in a true cliffhanger ending. It's great to be back with Mashista Mariah and Mongo again in this backup story, and this is an exciting chapter of their adventures. I love the title page which foreshadows the upcoming battle on the Great Fire Mountain, and the image of Sargon surrounded by flames as he takes the Book of the Dead is terrific. Another image I love is when the trio are looking down upon Sargon's stronghold from higher up on the mountain. Very nice. The Warlord, number 41, January 1981. The Pit, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks, Vince Coletta. Colors, Adrienne Roy. Letters, John Costanza. Editor, Jack C. Harris. Our story picks up with Tara, the Queen of Shambhala, arriving in Kombuka for her marriage to King Ashir. Travis Morgan looks from the balcony in surprise, and then he sees a group of assassins ready to attack Tara. Morgan leaps from the balcony and quickly dispatches the assassins. As Morgan approaches Tara, she thanks him for his assistance, but pretends not to know him. Realizing something is up, Morgan plays along, pretending not to know her as well. 
Later, Morgan climbs the palace wall and sneaks into Tara's chamber where the two are reunited. Tara thanks him for playing along with her ruse and explains that the Theron army is massing on the border of Shambhala, and the Council of Elders has arranged the marriage to Ashir, so the Kingdom of Kambuka will fight alongside with them. <coughs> Meanwhile, Shakira, in her cat form, is prowling the lower levels of the palace, where she overhears a guard who saw Morgan sneak into Tara's chambers. He's reporting to the sinister Harara, who sees this as a great opportunity to seize control from Ashir. Guards break into Tara's chamber, attempting to take her and Morgan captive, but the heroes easily overpower them. However, Harara throws a vial onto the floor, which fills the room with smoke and leaves the pair unconscious. They awaken to find themselves hanging above a pit with a giant, tentacled beast below. Harara is addressing a group of influential leaders of Kambuka and claiming Ashir is unfit to lead the kingdom because he was so easily deceived by Morgan and Tara. He calls for the leaders to overthrow Ashir and install Helm as the new leader. Just then, Ashir enters the room, accompanied by Shakira. Ashir is holding a bow with an arrow pointed at Harara and tells him he knows of his attempts to have him assassinated. Harara reaches for the switch to drop Morgan and Tara into the pit, but Ashir shoots him with an arrow and he falls into the pit to be devoured by the beast. As Morgan thanks Ashir for the rescue, Ashir tells him that he will give Tara back to Helm and Morgan replies that he will take her. This exchange infuriates Tara, who punches Morgan and then kicks Ashir, as she exclaims, I am no one's property to be bartered and traded. I will have neither of you. She then rides off into the forest, leaving Kambuka behind. Morgan changes back into his warlord outfit and declares that he will win Tara back. The exciting cover features Morgan holding his hellfire sword with Tara at his side, as the tentacles of the creature from the pit wrap around his leg. The awesome double-page title page features Morgan attacking the assassins in the foreground, with Tara on her horse in the background. The page where Morgan and Tara are reunited is emotional, as she struggles with what she wants and what she knows her kingdom needs. The page where the guards storm into Tara's chambers is another favorite. I love the way Mike Grell uses angles in the images, and the varied panel layouts add to the pacing and excitement. It's really great when Tara punches Morgan, she knocks the warlord to the ground harder than any foe could. It's an excellent issue with a fun story and great art. Wizard World, The Book of the Dead, Part 2. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Inks, Vince Coletta. Colors, Rachelson. Letters, Matt Snappen. Editor, Jaxie Harris. Our story picks up as Mongo Ironhand casts a protective spell around him, Mashista Mariah, protecting them momentarily from the avalanche of falling stones. As his spell begins to fail, Mashiste pulls him inside a cave that he and Mariah have found. In the dark cave, the trio encounter a very golem-like creature who warns them that Sargon will turn them into trophies, and in the shadows, they see the trophies he refers to are the skulls of those who have tried to attack the stronghold in the past. Our heroes make their way through the dark passages in the mountain caverns until they find their way into Sargon's stronghold, where they see him reading the Book of the Dead on a pedestal at the top of the winding staircase. Hiding in the shadows, our heroes overpower a guard and a robed servant. Mongo puts on the armor and Mashis wears the robe, and Mongo tells Mariah that he has a special plan for her. Later, we see Mongo and Mashis in their disguises approaching Sargon, but the evil wizard spots Mashis' still hand and knows who they are. Mashis throws a dagger toward Sargon, but it misses him and stabs into the Book of the Dead. Sargon laughs at his bad aim and turns to cast a spell on our heroes, but as his back is turned, we see that the dagger landed where Mashiste intended it as it begins to transform into Mariah, who then overpowers Sargon and throws him down the staircase. Mongo grabs the Book of the Dead and the trio rushes from the stronghold and begin to race up the mountain path. However, Sargon recovers and blasts the group just as they crest the top of the mountain. Mongo drops the book, which falls deep into the caverns of the mountain. He's sad at losing the book, but is comforted by the fact that Sargon doesn't have it either. However, what none of them see is that the book is found by the creature from the cave who gazes upon it as though it is something precious. I love the Lord of the Rings connections with the Gollum-type character and the evil wizard named Sargon, who reminds me of the wizard Saruman. It's a fun action-packed story with great art, and I especially love the shadow effects and perspectives that Mike Grell uses in the caverns. I also enjoyed seeing the design of the castle. 
It had a lot of nice elements with staircases and columns and arches that I appreciated. I also really like the panels where the dagger transforms into Mariah. Very nicely done. And I like the connection of both Tara and Mariah throwing some great punches in the two stories in this issue. R. What's that stand for? Robin. Hello, everyone. This is Rob Myers, and I'd like to invite you to check out my podcast called Robin. Everyone loves the Drake. Rob, are you going to take out the trash? Uh, I'm right in the middle of uh, recording a, an ad for my, my podcast. I'll, I'll do it in just a little bit, okay? Sorry to interrupt. Boy wonder time. Boy wonder? I'm all man, lady. Uh, Rob? Uh, okay, where was I? That's right. My podcast, Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake. It'll be hosted over at thebatmanuniverse.net. I'll be covering Tim Drake's origin story from the very beginning, starting with Tim's first appearance in Batman 436, also known as Batman Year 3, and hopefully going all the way through the Robin ongoing series, starting with issue 1 and going all the way to issue 183. 183 issues? Wow. Well, it's a good thing, because... Everyone loves the Drake. You don't like the Drake. I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. John Sable Freelance, number 28, September 1985. Bye Bye Blackbird, part one. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Colors, Janice Cohen. Letters, Ken Brusenak. Editor, Mike Gold. Our story opens with John Sable and Mike Blackman still at the cabin in the winter. Sable has woken from a nightmare and tells Mike the story of the Sparrow, who he knows is still seeking revenge. And now that he and Mike are in a relationship, he knows that puts her in danger. The two return to New York City. At home, Sable finds his friend Sonny Pratt is having a party with some of his old Hollywood friends, including fellow stuntman Wichita Kane Tuck who are in town for a charity auction of old Hollywood memorabilia that's being held on Long Island at the home of Mae Ashton. She inherited the world's greatest collection of movie props and costumes from her father, Miles Ashton, when his movie studio went bankrupt. Sable decides to go along, and since Mike has a deadline, he invites his editor, Eden Kendall, to the auction. He's missed his own deadline and thinks that letting Eden socialize with some Hollywood celebrities might patch things up with her. The party at the auction is going well, and Sable and Eden meet host Mae Ashton, as well as Stanley Greenberg and his companion, Joe Carr. Sable is enjoying seeing some of the memorabilia, including the original statue from the Maltese Falcon, Errol Flynn's boots from They Died With Their Boots On, Clint Eastwood's 44 Magnum from Dirty Harry, the violin from Johnny Belinda, Kirk Douglas's helmet from The Vikings, the original poster art from Gone With The Wind, and archer Howard Hill's longbow from The Adventures of Robin Hood. But the mood suddenly changes when host Mae Aston cries out, It's gone! And the guests turn to see that the statue of the Maltese Falcon is missing. The cover by Mike Grell features a shadowed image of John Sable's face in the background, with a flying blackbird in the foreground. The series is always great, but this issue is a real treat, because we love old movies and memorabilia, and the Maltese Falcon is one of our favorite films, and we've been lucky to see one of the statues used in the movie. The Adventures of Robin Hood is another favorite of ours, and fans of Mike Grell have certainly heard about champion archer Howard Hill, who did all of the trick archery in the classic Adventures of Robin Hood film. Some of my favorite art includes the opening page of John Sable cutting wood in the snow outside the cabin, before we realize the quaint scene is the beginning of a nightmare. Another favorite page is when Sable arrives back at home and sees strange shadows inside his home before entering and realizing it's his friend Sonny entertaining friends. It's a fun beginning to a great little mystery. John Sable Freelance, number 29, October 1985, Murder in Spades, Part 2. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Colors, Janice Cohen. Letters, Ken Brusnack. Editor, Mike Gold. Our story picks up with the arrival of Lieutenant Chambers, and while he's never met John Sable before, He's already heard more than he wants to know from Josh Winters. Despite the less-than-warm welcome, Sable suggests the lieutenant question Stanley Greenberg, who he knows was particularly interested in the Maltese Falcon. It turns out that Greenberg offered May Aston $100,000 to buy the statue without it going to auction, but she refused. There were at least three other attendees preparing to bid for the statue, and each was willing to go to $250,000. 
and while 50% of the proceeds of the auction were going to charity, the remaining 50% would go to Miss Aston, who was on the verge of personal bankruptcy following the bankruptcy of her father's film studio. This leads the lieutenant to suspect an inside job in hopes of keeping the statue while also collecting insurance money. But it turns out that Miss Aston let the insurance policy lapse because of her financial situation. Just then, Miss Aston spots a figure near the pool. John Sable, Sonny, and Wichita race from the house and tackle the man, but it turns out to be Miss Aston's gardener and pool cleaner. After a night of questioning, the guests are finally able to go home, but as Sable arrives at his front door, he notices scratches from someone picking the lock. Sable climbs in through a window and finds Stanley Greenberg, Joe Carr, and a bodyguard waiting for him. Greenberg offers Sable $100,000 to find the Maltese Falcon and return it to him without giving it to the police or May Aston. Shortly after the trio leave, Sable answers a knock at his front door to find a dying Wichita who has been shot several times. He falls to the floor and drops a large package that he's been carrying. Sable unwraps the crumpled newspaper surrounding the item to discover the Maltese Falcon. The cover features an image of John Sable in the foreground wearing a trench coat and holding his pistol with a silhouette of the Maltese Falcon in the background. The double-page title page is a spectacular montage suitable for framing showing the Maltese Falcon, an image of John Sable wearing a fedora, and a classic Mercedes. And I love that the title references Sam Spade, who is the main character in the film played by Humphrey Bogart. The investigation unfolds very quickly as several possible scenarios are discussed and dismissed, and the ending scene is a great cliffhanger reminiscent of the original film. Besides the spectacular title page, some of my favorite art includes Sable arriving at home and climbing up the wall and through a window, as well as the final page when the Maltese Falcon is unveiled. John Sable Freelance Number 30, November 1985. The Stuff of Dreams, Part 3. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Colors, Janice Cohen. Letters, Ken Bruzenak. Editor, Mike Gold. Our story opens with Winters investigating the death of Wichita, and John Sable is providing all of the relevant information, with the exception of mentioning the statue of the Maltese Falcon, which he has hidden. When Winters leaves, Sable calls his friend Harold, the file clerk, and asks him to dig up any connections between Miles Aston and Stanley Greenberg, and to relay the results of the autopsy on Wichita. Just then, May Aston shows up and offers Sable 50% of the sale price of the statue if he can find the Maltese Falcon and return it to her. Sable goes to the cheap hotel where Wichita was staying and finds that it's been searched. The cleaning lady tells him a well-dressed lady visited the room the night before. After getting the results of the autopsy from Harold, Sable calls Stanley Greenberg and tells him to meet him at May Aston's home. Later, at home, May Aston hears someone playing as time goes by from Casablanca. As she descends the stairs, she sees it's John Sable playing the piano. He begins telling her the story of her father, Miles Aston, who drained the funds from his production company to buy gold and jewels. He then had that made into the statue of the Maltese Falcon, before having it painted black to use as a prop in the film. He planned to hide it away for his retirement, but it was stolen from the prop room 40 years earlier, and then he became a recluse in self-exile. It was Wichita who stole the statue to get back at Miles Aston because he was injured on one of his films and was forced to retire, ending his career. Wichita, though, didn't know the statue was gold underneath the paint and just kept it as a memento of his revenge. However, when he saw the statue being sold at the auction, he accused May Aston of selling a fake because he had the original. Hearing Wichita's story made May Aston realize he had the valuable version that her father had been obsessed with all of his life. It was May Aston who hid the fake version during the party by throwing it from the window into the pool below. That's why she was so distressed when her gardener arrived and began to clean the pool. She then went to Wichita's apartment and searched for it, but couldn't find it because he had already left with it to go to John Sable's home. She followed him and shot him with a prop gun filled with five-in-one blanks. These only sting at a distance, but she shot Wichita multiple times at close range. May pulls out another prop gun, but Sable knows he's too far away for the weapon to do any damage. At that moment, Stanley Greenberg and Joe Carr arrive, and a fight follows, but several quick moves from Sable leads to both of them being in the pool, where he tells them they can collect the statue from the bottom of the pool. 
but they won't be getting away with it because Lieutenant Chambers, who Sable called, has just arrived to take them all to jail. Our mystery comes to a nice, satisfying ending with John Sable able to capture murderer May Aston and attempted thieves Stanley Greenberg and Joe Carr. I especially like the way this mystery has some hints of real life, including references to the weight of the original statues. Humphrey Bogart himself complained about the weight of the lead props, which weighed 50 pounds each. Following his complaints, lighter props were made that were primarily used in the filming. I like seeing the investigation, and Mike Grell leaves clues for the reader, including the reference to five-in-one shells, and a dust-free spot on a shelf in Wichita's hotel room. The art features some great perspectives, especially during the encounters with Mae Aston, Stanley Greenberg, and Joe Carr near the end of the book. And I really like the red classic Mercedes convertible on the cover. This is a very satisfying three-part mystery. In late 1984, Marvel's direct sales manager sat in a crowded meeting of comic retailers. Let's be honest, Secret Wars was crap, right? But did it sell? The room exploded with applause. Well, get ready for Secret Wars Series 2! Beginning in 2018, Pulp to Pixel's Marvel's superhero Secret Wars and Beyond will do the unthinkable Secret Wars 2. We'll take a detailed look at the event, the tie-ins, the new characters, and we will attempt to answer one of the largest questions in the history of the Marvel Universe. What the heck was Jim Shooter thinking? No, no, seriously, what was Jim Shooter thinking? Well, you can find out at the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, where you can subscribe to all of our amazing shows, or just to Secret Wars and Beyond itself, as it is now in its own omnipotent feed. Secret Wars 2 and Beyond, a Pulp to Pixel Podcast production. You'll believe an omnipotent being can use the restroom. Joining us next is our friend Sean Ross from the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, where he and Dr. G host a variety of excellent podcasts, including Welcome to Astro City, Secret Sagas of the Multiverse, Dial G for Gamer, Marvel Secret Wars and Beyond, and MotuCast, based on the Masters of the Universe. Sean's a big fan of Mike Grell's Green Arrow, and he's going to cover Green Arrow issues 33 through 34 for us. This two-part story continues from the issues he covered for us back in episode 19. We're very excited that he wanted to come back on the show to share his thoughts about these excellent issues. Thank you, Sean. Hi, I'm Sean Ross, and I co-host the Marvel Superhero Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, as well as the Welcome to Astro City podcast, which can be found on the Pulp to Pixel podcast network. On a recent episode of Warlord Worlds, I reviewed Green Arrow's issues 31 and 32, which cover a major turning point in the lives of Oliver Queen and Dinah Lance. Today, I will review and discuss the next two issues in the series, which cover the fallout from those events. Now, when I last guested on this show, Darren and Ruth asked me to tell the story of how I first discovered Mike Grell. In the continuation of that spirit, before I jump into the issues, I'm going to tell you my secret origin for how I first met Black Canary. Now, flashback with me to October of 1983. I'm a young boy who has only recently begun collecting comics. I have a stack of G.I. Joes, a stack of Batmans, but I'm only just beginning to venture out into those other four-color worlds on the spinner rack. So one day I'm in a local convenience store, and I see an issue of Justice League of America. Now I know some of the characters because of episodes of Super Friends and things like that, but I'd only bought a couple issues of the actual book for fear that I might inadvertently encounter Wendy or Marvin. In this issue, though, the JLA is teaming up with the Justice Society of America, which is apparently a thing. And they are from something called Earth 2. I did not know there was an Earth 2. I did not know there was an Earth 1. So I didn't know anything about anything. And I was so excited by the possibility of another Justice League-type team and another Earth and another universe that I was like, yep, I'm all in. I'm buying the issue. I know this is going to be great. So needless to say, I take home Justice League of America issue 219, followed quickly by 220, and these tell the secret origin of Black Canary. Now, it's a tale as old as time, right? Girl grows up as a hero in the 1940s, girl meets a guy, marries, settles down, guy is killed by an alien entity, girl leaves for another Earth, girl starts shacking up with a sketchy archer. We've all been there. Except, Black Canary as depicted in the JLA is way too young to have been a crime fighter in the 40s, right? Enter Roy Thomas, who, with Jerry Conway and Chuck Patton, Reveal the story of how Earth 2 Black Canary actually had a daughter who was a mutant with a sonic scream who was cursed by the wizard. So Johnny Thunder, who has a magic thunderbolt, sent the daughter to limbo 
But then Black Canary is mortally wounded in the fight that kills her father. So during her journey to Earth-1, Johnny has the Thunderbolt switch her mind and spirit into the now young adult body of her own daughter, who has been in limbo the entire time. And yeah, that's how we get Black Canary. Yay! <laughs> very exciting and very easy to follow, Roy Thomas. Thanks for all the consideration for new readers. But you see, instead of hating this story, I loved it. Honestly, 99% of the rest of the world would never have picked up another issue of JLA and probably never another comic book, but I was totally hooked. I was interested in finding more out about Black Canary, the JLA, the JSA, and this is totally how I knew I was a comic book fan for life, right? If my young mind could not only survive a Roy Thomas continuity fix, but could find enjoyment in it, then this was the habit for me. So my secret origin of discovering Black Canary is also the first time I realized yeah, I'm in this for life. Okay, on to the review. So Green Arrow issues 33 and 34 are written by Mike Grell, drawn by regular series artist Dan Jurgens, inked by Frank McLaughlin, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Julia Lacament, and edited by Mike Gold. They are titled Broken Arrow, parts one and two. So Green Arrow issue 33 opens with Oliver running in fear towards this golden handle on a wooden door. As the door opens, he sees ghosts of the men who tortured him in the previous issues. The scene cuts to Oliver in a therapy session as his doctor tries to get him to open up about his feelings after surviving his recent torture at the hands of drug dealers in issues 31 and 32. Now, Oliver understandably is angry, but he is not confronting his real issues. As the issue progresses and Oliver dives deeper into his emotions, with each new layer revealed, the image of the doorknob from the opening of the issue looms ever closer. Clearly, it's a symbol of his fear. Now, while Oliver is exploring his fears and emotional scars in therapy, Dinah is having a similar experience as she sits at home reflecting, holding his bloody uniform in her hands. Dinah realizes how close they came to dying, and she flashes back to her discussion with Oliver in the Longbow Hunters miniseries, where she told him that she would not have children with him because of the omnipresent risk of death. She tells him, Oliver, I will not raise orphans. The issue culminates with Oliver making a breakthrough in therapy that helps him better understand himself and Dinah. As he heads home to see her, she tells him that she has a breakthrough of her own. She wants to have a child with him. So that's a pretty big cliffhanger, right? Well, that's going to take us to Green Arrow issue 32. Now, Green Arrow issue 32 opens with the word spring. And this is really important because the first half of the issue shows Ollie and Dinah trying to have a child. Now, later in the issue, Oliver decides to get back on the horse. He dons the hood and he goes looking for Reggie, the man who ordered his torture. After laying siege to the Seattle drug underworld looking for clues, Ollie is approached by his old frenemy, Eddie Fires, who tells him that he can help him get his revenge. Now, Oliver should know better than to trust Eddie because Eddie is not trustworthy unless you're Connor Hawk. But that'll come much later. But Fire sets Ollie up on a mission to track Reggie's drugs back to their source in order to plant what he says is a tracker that can be used to eventually bust the entire operation. Now, unfortunately, as is wont to happen when you trust Eddie Fires, things go sideways. The ship is filled with drugs and it explodes and Oliver is arrested. And needless to say, this will be continued. Okay, so right... Like, a lot happens in these two issues. And honestly, in the two that came before that I reviewed on the most recent episode of Warlord Worlds. But as I ana analyze these issues, as I look into them, I want to particularly focus on two specific elements. So let's begin with Oliver's therapy session. Now, just the fact that a male superhero is in a therapy session after dealing with a traumatic event is a major moment in comic book history. Now, keep in mind it's 1990 when this book comes out. For decades, heroes have been hyper-masculine, undefeatable gods who are above things like feelings or fear or regret. To have a superhero require therapy was unheard of. But man, thank God for Mike Grell. Not only does he make Ollie more human by having him seek help, he's also telling a generation of young readers, and in particular young male readers, that not only is it okay to go to therapy, but it is in fact a sign of strength. Now, I know that for me, this issue later made it much easier to both realize that I needed help and to seek out help during rougher times of my life. And I really do think part of it was because it was normalized for me in these very early issues of Green Arrow when I was really young. 
So all these therapy sessions, it's fascinating. Now, predictably, he begins with anger. He's mad that he can't kill the men who tortured him as Dinah has already taken care of them. Now, this would have been the kind of safe way to go with this issue, but Grell's doctor is a really, is, she's really good at her job. She's a really good character. She knows that there's more going on. And she eventually turns the discussion to Dinah because Ollie's going to be more willing to discuss her than he is his own feelings. Now, Ollie, because of his experience at the hands of these torturers, can more fully understand how Dinah felt when he rescued her from the men who were torturing her in the Longbow Hunters miniseries. He knows what it's like to lose all dignity and control of your life and to have the person you love the most see you in this like vulnerable and, and horrible moment that not only do you never want to relive or think about again, but it, it hurts you to know that somebody else has it in their mind as well, particularly somebody who loves you and who you love. Ollie's therapist, she also sees Dinah as a patient, which I think is a really important detail. And she tells Ollie that when Dinah was being tortured, she tried to die. And this moment really shakes Ollie. And, and Dan Jurgens does an amazing job of showing him mouth agape and, you know, the, the blood just draining from his face. This moment has shocked Ollie so deeply, both because it makes him realize how hurt Dinah had been, but also because he has to confront that while being tortured, he too wished to die. Now, he would, of course, forgive Dinah for her moment of, and I don't even want to call it weakness, but her moment of desperation. So in turn, how can he not forgive himself? Now, taking him even further through his trauma, she confronts him about his actions with Dinah's torturer. She forces Ollie to admit that he chose to kill the man, even though he knew that choice would change everything for he and Dinah. Ollie sees that Dinah made the same choice for him. And again, if he is going to forgive her for her choice to kill the men that was, were torturing him, and of course he would forgive her, he kind of has no choice but to forgive himself. Even further, if he's going to tell Dinah that it is not her fault that he killed to rescue her, then he too must listen when she tells him that her choice to kill his brutalizers is not another weight that he gets to add to his emotional pile. So we realize that Ollie has begun to truly heal when he opens the door that has been haunting his thoughts and dreams and, and he no longer sees torturers, instead he sees Dinah in a wedding dress. He sees a future. This issue is brilliant and unprecedented. The late 80s were a time of great experimentation in comics with books like Watchmen and Swamp Thing and Dark Knight Returns. And these books are often referred to as psychological thrillers. And, and they're very thrilling and they are very thought-provoking. However, they are psychological in only one manner. They're dark and they lean into that dark and into the sort of, more of, sort of primal and animalistic parts of humanity. This issue of Green Arrow, however, is an important balance to that impulse. It too is a psychological thriller, but it is thrilling in that we get to see both the cost of this vigilante life and the work that needs to be done to heal from its wounds. Oliver Queen is a good hero because he stops criminals. He's a good man because he worked to heal from the wounds and to overcome his pain. Like, that makes him stronger. That makes him more human and relatable. And we transition from these amazing emotional moments into issue 32. And this has a really interesting plot that leads to Ollie being arrested. However, to me, the more interesting focus in the issue is on Ollie and Dinah trying to have a child. Now, the issue allows us into incredibly intimate moments with the couple. It opens with them walking through Seattle, suggesting names for the baby. And they're doing what all couples do, which is experimenting with funny and goofy names. And like, I relate to this in particular because I'm a teacher. And be when you're a teacher and you're about to have your first child, that eliminates a large swath of names. Now, I love my students and I love all of my kids. But man, there are some kids whose names resonate differently for me. And I was not going to name my son or daughter after the kid who picked his nose every day through sixth grade through my English class. So, so it makes that a fun process. And it's something that people, you know, who've had children can relate to. And then they get home. And as they arrive at home, they're going to, to make love. They're going to try to make a child. And they have this really great moment where Dinah says to him, hey, put on your costume. And he says, well, I will if you will. And it's this really fun moment where they're acknowledging their kinks and they're acknowledging this, this healthy sexual life that they have as, you know, consenting adults in a very healthy relationship. And I love that Grell doesn't sensationalize this moment, but he also doesn't shy away from it. And he just lets it unfold. And that's actually what happens with the rest of the scene. So 
this moment, this scene of Ollie and Dinah together is equally as groundbreaking as the fact that both of them are in therapy. Other comics at the time, and many that would come later, unfortunately, would have made this scene salacious, and you know, and a lesser creative team would have tried to titillate and excite the readers to maintain sales or to shock and get into Wizard or something. But Grell and Jurgens, they're just better than that. I mean, they are veterans of the industry and are both, you know, authors and artists of some of the greatest runs in comic books, you know, ever for Marvel and DC. And they don't show Ollie and Dinah together for prurient reasons. They do it to show the full range of intimacy shared by loving couples. In particular, I want to draw attention to the art in this moment. Jurgens leaves Ollie and Dinah in various layers of undress. At one point, Dinah has only her jacket on, for example. And this moment just feels so real, because as couples who have been together for a long time know, there's just this absence of superfluous shame and concern about nudity in in day-to-day life. Like, when you are truly with a partner, and you are truly with somebody, especially for a long period of time, you just move through life together fully and, and sort of without reserve. And this moment shows us the depth of Ollie and Dinah's ease and comfort with each other. And the sweetness of this moment, it's unfortunately, it's quickly juxtaposed with sadness. Because as Oliver is off on this other adventure to sort of track down the drugs at their source, Dinah goes to a doctor's appointment, and she learns that she cannot have children. Now Oliver comes home from his adventure, Dinah shares this moment, shares this news, and, th- and this moment is really raw, and it's just emotionally devastating. But Grell, like any good writer, won't turn away from it. He keeps us in the moment. Because he wants us to see their pain and their strength as they try to assuage, you know, each other's pain and, and what they're feeling. They just keep telling each other that they love each other over and over and over. And it is so sweet and so heartbreaking at the same time. And it's like we've been let into this moment in this couple's life and we've been able to kind of share it and, and see it. And the only reason it resonates as, as loudly and as, as, as much as it does is because Ollie and Dinah are so real. But the Ollie and Dinah of Mike Rell's Green Arrow run are very real people who are growing and going through very real experiences that are, are quite often universal. So, so once again, Grell has shown a generation of readers and especially a generation of young male readers that real love is honest and sweet and clumsy and vulnerable and communicative and sometimes heartbreaking. He's not just allowing Dinah and Ollie to grow up in his book, which is already a rarity, but he's encouraging us to grow up with them. And so that's what, for me, makes this such a seminal group of issues and such a seminal run on this book. So that brings me to the end of my look at Green Arrows issues 33 and 34. And I want to just take a quick moment to thank Ruth and Darren Sutherland for inviting me back and for letting me ramble on about some of my favorite comic books of all time. I mean, I love these characters, these creators in this book. And it like totally makes my day to participate in this show because I also love this show. So thank you, Darren. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, Hopefully you guys enjoyed my review of these issues. And if you have not read them, go out and get Mike Grell's entire, really go out and get his entire run of Green Arrow. Like just go read it. It is one of the rare times in comic books where superheroes get to grow up and grow old and have a first, second, and third act together. So if you're looking for something a little different and a little deeper, check out Green Arrow. Thank you, Sean, for that truly amazing review. Your insights and thoughts highlight the best of these excellent stories, and we're thrilled that you joined us to share your feelings with other fans. Next up is listener feedback, when we share emails and other messages we received since last time. We appreciate each comment. I think they add so much to the show. Thanks to everyone who wrote in or got in touch through social media. Wendy Freeman of the podcast Double Page Spread shared her excitement about our last episode. We always appreciate Wendy's energy and encouragement about our podcasts. Artist Warren Montgomery of Will Lil Comics let us know how happy he was to see Maggie the Cat get funded. If you're looking for a new comic to read, check out Warren's many great comics at the WLComics.com. We're big fans. John Baker from 3 If By Space wrote, Just listen to your podcast. It's such a good feeling to hear from folks who enjoy the work of Mike Grell on so many projects. Always interesting to hear the stories people share. Always an informative and well-done podcast. Thanks, John. Sean Ross wrote in about Chris's segment from episode 19, saying it was excellent. So good, in fact, that I just ordered the issue online. Thanks for entertaining me and for lightening my wallet. Mark Sweeney of the ITG blog and podcast wrote, Wonderful work by both hosts and guests on this episode. Very enjoyable listen. 
Jared Albrick, the yard sale artist, did a fun post on Twitter this winter saying, A little cold, quiet December evening with some hot cocoa and some warlord. I truly love this book. Never would have happened if I hadn't become friends with Ruth and Darren. We're so happy to have introduced Jared to the warlord. Glad you're enjoying it, Jared. Many of Mike Rail's fans were excited to see the Warlord show up in the pages of Young Justice, with new art by Mike Rail himself. There were lots of great remarks all over social media. Martin Gray of Too Dangerous for a Girl exclaimed, Wow! How about those Mike Rail pages in this week's Young Justice? Dr. Ange of the Supergirl comic box commentary let us know he really liked the Mike Rail variant cover and some of the excellent pages inside the issue. And Chris of Bat Books for Beginners and the Professor Frenzy Show also shared his enthusiasm over the Mike Grell artwork and double-page spreads in Young Justice. And we really enjoyed seeing a photo that Robert Myers of the podcast Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake, shared with us of some of the great selection of comics that Mike Grell signed for him at Motor City Con. Very cool, Robert. Simon Barry Brisbois does wonderful reviews on The Warlord on Twitter, complete with photos from the comics, and he shared his thoughts with us about some of the strong female characters in the series. He wrote, I like Tara for her militarian and strategic side, which allows her to help Travis in getting knowledge about Skataris, even good common sense about things that are out of the ordinary for him. Simon continued about Mariah, saying, I like her because she represents the Earth side of Travis, but also the modernity of the 20th century as she goes into an age that goes back to past values linked to Roman and medieval ages. She confronts her visions with the one from that world and learns from it while succeeding and improving on it in other ways. As for Shakira, she's part of the wild unpredictability of Skataris and of its magic. She's also a great fighter on the field and also quite mysterious. Never are you sure what she might do next with Travis. Though it's evident that she, like Mariah and Tara, has feelings for Travis. Either way, all three of these female characters are a proof of Mike's feminist side to the story, as they are all voices of common sense and brains for Travis, who, although he has power and military strategy, might not always have the sense of thought that might help him further in situations where he fell into ambushes. Thanks for those great comments, Simon. Very good. And we'll conclude by catching up on some terrific iTunes reviews from listeners. Jerry, a.k.a. Professor Frenzy of The Professor Frenzy Show, said, Darren and Ruth have done it again. I was turned on to Trekker Talk and decided to give Warlord Worlds a try. I'm glad I did. If you are a comic book fan, you can't go wrong with Warlord Worlds. Great recaps, interviews, and more. Their love of the creators they talk about comes through loud and clear. Christopher Calloway from the Creator Talks podcast posted, Darren and Ruth are excellent hosts and put a lot of work into producing their podcasts. Their passion for Mike Grell's work really shows through in each episode. And Sean Ross left this review titled, Grell of a Good Time. This amazing show reviews the work of legendary comics creator Mike Grell. Darren and Ruth's love for his work is infectious, and will remind you why you need to go reread your issues of Warlord, Sable, Green Arrow, and The Legion. This show is like hanging out with good friends and talking about great art. Listen already? We can't thank all of you enough for those very kind words, and for taking the time to post those reviews. We really appreciate it. Thank you all. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media. These are people who promoted our last episode and shared comments. If we miss a name, please let us know and we'll include it next time. And please do forgive us if we mispronounce a name. If that happens, just let us know and we'll be happy to correct it next time as well. Aaron Henley, Al Sedano of Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. Alan Wright from BoldOutlaw.com. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog. Ashford of the Ride On Network featuring Feathers and Foes and Straight Out of Gallifrey. Austin Appleby, BK On The Air. Bill Beer from Too Old Too New and the Bat Pod Podcast. Bob Grell from the Wonderful Grell Family. Brian Mulvey. Castle Scott. Chris of Bat Books for Beginners and the Professor Frenzy Show. Chris Sheehan of the Cosmic Treadmill Podcast and the blog Chris is on Infinite Earths. Clinton Robson of the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast. Creator Talks with Christopher Calloway, Colin Stapleton from the Worst Comics Podcast Ever, Derek William Crabb of the Fanholes Podcast and History of Comics on Film, Diablo Frank of the Idle Head of Diablo Martian Manhunter Blog, the Diana Prince Wonder Woman Podcast and the Marvel Handbook, Donald Troll, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology from the Pulped Pixel Podcast, Ed and Terry Moore of Till Productions, Eric Justin, 
Gene Hendricks from The Hammer Strikes and of Anime Freaks. Jerry Green from The Professor Fringy Show and Bat Books for Beginners. Green Lantern HG. Holly M. of Holly Wrote It. Into the Weird. Irredeemable Shag, a.k.a. Firestorm fan of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Jared Albrook, the yard sale artist from the Longbox Crusade and On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast. Jeff Messer from Issues With and the Mike Grill Page. Jeremy Gunter. I was Joe Crawford from the blog for the non-discerning reader. John Baker, who does sci-fi TV reviews at Three of By Space. Karen Williams of the Sweet Between the Pages blog. Carmen Hunt. Laurel Phillips, a.k.a. Mountainflower. The Legion of Superbloggers. Luke Giaconetti of the Earth Destruction Directive. Mark Sweeney from the ITG blog and podcast. Martin Gray of the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl. Max Traver. Michael Lane of Comics in the Golden Age. Mike Alonzo. Mike Garvey of Waiting for Doom and the DCOCD podcast. Mike Tamaris. Nate Ormond. Nathan Jerome. Nethead. Nicholas Brom of Comic Reflections. Pat Sampson of the Longbox Crusade and on Her Majesty's Secret podcast. Paul Hicks of Waiting for Doom and the DCOCD podcast. Paul Keen. Paul Spataro of Back to the Bins and Is It Jaws. Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Randy Andrews of Soundtrack Alley and the Gen 13 Files. Robert Wilson. Russell Burbage of the Legion of Superbloggers. Ryan Daly of Midnight the Podcasting Hour and Batman Nightcast. Sean Ross of the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. Simon Barry Brisbois. Slangword Scott. Steve Bridge. Podcrasher Tim Price. Vic Sage of the Retroist. Warren Montgomery of Will Lil Comics. Wendy Freeman of the podcast Double Page Spread. And Zeb Oswalt. Before we go, we want to provide our contact information. If you want to contact us directly or have something you would like to have read on the show, then please send an email to warlordworlds at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram using the name Warlord Worlds. And you can listen to our show through iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and all of our episodes are always available at warlordworlds.com. You can also find the show on YouTube as part of the Rad Adventures Network. That's Rad, R-A-D, which is short for Ruth and Darren. On the Rad Adventures YouTube channel, you'll find all of the episodes of all of our podcasts, including Warlord Worlds, as well as Trekker Talk about 23rd Century Bounty Hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall, and Xenozoic Xenophiles about the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs series Xenozoic Tales by Mark Schultz. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Every review helps the podcast be more likely to show up in search results. And on YouTube, we hope you'll subscribe to the channel and give us some likes on the videos. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll come back next time for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. For more information, visit comicspodcast.com. We are not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended.